Sometimes it's the unexpected things in life that, um, that are most surprising and uh, in many ways just um, very helpful. And as I come to this particular text uh, today, there's a lot of things that I found unexpected, which um, not only were they unexpected, but they proved to be true. And the truth of uh, behind the unexpected was uh, so encouraging. I think first of all, for those of you who, are, who like literature, uh, and maybe study English language, um, the literature of the Bible and the way the Bible is written is, is extraordinary. And uh, chapter 18 and chapter 19 of Genesis really form a unit. And uh, if you were to take some time this afternoon and read these verses together, all of chapter 18 and chapter 19, uh, you would begin to see there some patterns and some structure that is absolutely fascinating. Uh, particularly when you compare uh, chapter 18 verses 1 to 15 and then all of chapter 19, uh, there you find um, uh, darkness and light contrasted uh, morally in many ways and just the light of the revelation of God to us. Um, both of those uh, uh, instances begin with two men sitting. Uh, there's two visitations. There's two receptions. There's um, two announcements about the future. There's two offers of hospitality. There's two different outcomes and there's two birth announcements. And the way that they are contrasted is just brilliant. And so there's the unexpected joy of finding the Bible to be not just words on a page, but beautiful literature. But then as you read these um, words together, at least as I, read them, as I read them these past week and thought a lot about them, there was so much in it that just jumped out to me as unexpected. But as I thought it through, I thought, but this is so true in my life. Things about God and observations about his world and observations about his power and some of his wonders uh, in this life. And so as I read this, I thought, well, so much of this just caught me off guard. But it was through them that God revealed and reaffirmed truth to me. And as we've been saying for almost a year now, uh, God is real and that changes everything. And when you come to a text like this, the reality of God and the change that that brings does change everything. We will see how the reality of God changes the way that we view reality that we live in. We will see how the reality of God um, helps us think about the world to come. And we will see how the reality of God helps us live before him in this world in which we find ourselves. So three, three things today that um, are of interest to me and uh, that I think are helpful to us is uh, we find here visited by God. We are not alone in the world. And this, I think, is a real helpful thing for us to uh, work through. Yes, it's unexpected to maybe pull that thought out of these verses. But it is a wonderful reality to think through th this point that we are not alone in this world. As many of you know, though, that's not how a lot of people see this world in which we live. Strangely enough, I find it odd that there's many people in our world that actually believe in alien invasions or that aliens actually come to this world. And some of them believe that the aliens even interact with people and sometimes even inhabit them. But those same people will never consider that God visited this world. And at first thought, God coming down to earth in a human form is unexpected. You read this text and it kind of catches you off guard, or it should catch us off guard a little bit. But as we begin to wrestle through this reality, what it implies about our world and what it implies about God is really incredible. Ask yourself this question, if you could. If it were true 
that God was interested enough in a world that he made to visit it, what difference would such a truth make in your life and how would it change the way that you think about God and his world? Again, if it were true that God was interested enough to visit the world in which he made, what difference would such a truth make in your life? And how would it change the way you think about God and the world that we live in? Genesis 18.1 begins uh, in, a, in a very familiar way now. We've, we've found this in Abraham's uh, the, the story of Abraham. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham at the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. That's just simply a statement. In fact, it's actually a, a statement of the rest of this chapter, of all of chapter 18. This is uh, what we would call a theophany. A theophany is a, an appearance of God, a, a, a visible appearance of God. And by visible, I mean in quote. Uh, in quotations. As we know, the reader, we know something about the appearance of God that Abraham didn't know yet. What we are not expecting is how God appeared to Abraham. It matters to read the story with this question in mind. How did the Lord appear to Abraham in this instance? And it's essential not to rush over the statement then the Lord appeared to Abraham. How easily we are lulled into thinking that the question and or the statement is of little consequence. But if you begin to think them through, they just explode in your heart and mind with questions and, and wonderment about the appearance of God. So what I want us to do is pick it up halfway through now at verse 1. The statement of the whole chapter is God appeared to Abraham. But halfway through chapter or verse 1 now, we realize that it's siesta time. Abraham is likely escaping the heat of the day, sitting in the entrance of his tent. The desert could easily get to 110, 120 degrees, and that would be a place where you would just escape from the heat. And he looks up and he sees three men standing nearby. I'm sure he probably wondered to himself, now where did these guys come from? Nothing really unusual about it other than they just happen to show up in the heat of the day. That's not when you're walking. That's not when you're traveling about. But they just seem to show up. Apparently, though, to Abraham, this really wasn't something really extraordinary or anything really unusual at first. But he did, however, we see, jump up into hospitality mode right away. And he did it in a big way. And his treatment of these strangers was akin to ancient Near Eastern traditions of hospitality. And we also see something of the heart of Abraham and the character of Abraham in his treatment of these three visitors. You might say, well, this is a pretty un inconvenient visit. And it is an inconvenient visit. It's in the middle of the day, the heat of the day. But as we think through opportunities for hospitality, they're most often not convenient. They come when we're least expecting them. It was an honor to be sure to Abraham because he said to these three individuals as they're there, if I have found favor in your sight, he was surprised that they had showed up at his tent. There might have been other tents around. Certainly there was other part of people at part of his camp. But this isn't false humility. It's just simply Abraham's way of saying, I'm honored that you want to spend time with me. I'm honored that you showed up at my tent. Clearly, he saw it as a providence also. 
This is why he says you have passed your servant's way. It's so that I can show you hospitality. It's so that I can prepare a meal for you and then send you on your way. Nothing is by chance. And these three visitors showed up at the front of Abraham's tent so he could provide nourishment for them. He saw that as a providence. And then finally, you might say, well, is his hospitality a show of wealth? Well, absolutely not. I don't know if you caught this when Andrew read the text because he says to them, let me give you a morsel of bread. He's actually prepared this massive feast for them, a lamb and curds and these baked breads, but he he summarizes it all by saying simply, let me give you a morsel of bread. Maybe that was Abraham's way of saying, if you had to give me a little more time and a little more preparation, I really could have put a spread on for you. As I thought about that, just as a side note, I I thought about my own attitude sometimes to uh, people that just show up, um, uh, that that maybe come to visit, and they just show up and say, hey, can we stay for a couple days, or we're here for dinner? And I thought, I'm probably not as hospitable as Abraham was to these three individuals. But I can learn a few things from Abraham. But the big unexpected thing about this is not what the text tells us about hospitality. It's what the text tells us about the nature of reality. Think this through with me a little bit. Who are these three men that show up? Well, if you've never read this text before, you'd say, well, they're just three men. And they just happened to be walking in the desert. And they showed up at at the front of Abraham's tent. But as you read a little bit further into chapter 18 and into 19, you find out that two of these men are angels and one of them is Jehovah. Do you understand what the biblical writer is telling us as he's drawing this scene now? There are spiritual beings that interact with our physical world. He's telling us that God is interested in the world that he has made. He's telling us that both angels and God can take on a human form that we might interact with them. It's a fascinating statement about the nature of reality. And contrary to the vast majority of people who live in the present world that we exist in now, who believe that all that reality consists of is the physical or the product of evolution or biology, And a representative of that kind of thinking, I was rereading his book a little bit this week. He says, human existence may be simpler than we thought. There's no predestination, no unfathomed mystery of life. Demons and gods do not vie for our allegiance. Instead, we are self-made, independent, alone, and fragile. A biological species adapted to live in a biological world. That is the reality of the vast majority of people, certainly in the first world. All that we see around us is reality in a physical sense. There is no other reality. But then you have those who do ask from time to time, well, does God exist? And if he really does, where is he now? How can I find him? To many of these people, the words of Job, I think, are really appropriate. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. This incident in Abraham's life throws the doors wide open to a different reality. 
See, the Bible describes our reality as both physical and spiritual. And the spiritual reality that's all around us is as real as the physical reality in which we exist. And these two realities mix. They intermingle. In fact, the spiritual world has a significant influence on the physical world in which we live. John, writing to the people of, that he wrote his first letter to John to, he says, we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Well, who's the evil one? The evil one is Satan or the devil. Or in a, a different perspective of this, it, God tells us, he says, from one man, God has made, or he made every nation of men to live all over the earth and has determined their appointed times in the boundaries where they live. Why? Why has God, why has this God made men and women all through time to live all around the world? Well, Paul tells us, so that they might seek him. And perhaps they might reach out and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. This intermixing or this intermingling of a spiritual reality and a physical reality. You see, what, what this text is describing to us right now is that there are angels that interact with the world in which we live. And we know from Scripture that there are millions and millions of them. And at one point, all of the angels that God had created followed and worshipped and obeyed God. But the Scripture doesn't tell us exactly what happens, but it tells us that there was a rebellion in heaven. That one of the lead beings that God had ever created, Lucifer or Satan, turned against God, rebelled against God. And a third of the angels that God had created followed after Satan and rebelled with him. You can read about that rebellion in Revelation chapter 12. The result then is now that there are good angels or elect angels. And there are fallen angels or angels that have sinned. And they are awaiting the eternal judgment of God. But the point is simply that these angelic beings now interact with the physical world in which God has made. And they do so in significant ways. You can read this in fascinating um, terms if you were to read the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation. And we need to be aware of this reality. Many of us are familiar with Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul then says to the Christians that he's writing to, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Well, why? Why do I need to be strong? Why do I need to put on the armor of God? He says, so that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And they well, wait a minute, what's going on? Stand against the schemes of the devil? Yeah, and then he's, he goes on, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that's physical reality, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. In another place, he tells us, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to devour. In another place, we read about Jesus, who says Jesus was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Again, all of those three texts illustrate this, this point that I'm making, that we live in a spiritual and a physical reality. 
You can go through the scriptures and you can find so many instances of angelic beings in the world in which we live. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, God sent a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the entrance back into the garden so they couldn't eat of the tree of life. We read in Genesis chapter 6 of angels coming down and, and physically interacting with the daughters of men and producing a hybrid form of being. We read about angels that protect cities. Um, for instance, Elijah is, or Elisha wants to show his servant that he's okay and that he's safe. And so he says, God, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And Jehovah opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. We hear, we read about God's angel standing in front of a prophet who was wayward and all of a sudden makes himself visible. And the prophet and the donkey that he's riding is struck by the presence of this spiritual being. You read in the New Testament, we're coming up to these stories of how the angels of God come to earth and they speak to um, John the Baptist's father, they speak to Mary, they speak to Joseph, they appear in the clouds to the shepherds, and you read Revelation and you find angelic beings doing the bidding of God on this earth. And so we realize that there's this intersection of spiritual and physical, that we're not alone in this world, we're not only physical beings. One of my favorite texts, just, just for my own personal well-being and safety, and, and I, I acknowledge this, and I think of this often. It says, for he will give his angels to protect you wherever you go. I don't know if you're aware of that, but we live in a world that is full of not only seen dangers, but unseen dangers. And I don't know how many times in my life I could attribute something that, that protected me, something that delivered me, something that preserve me someone and I have no doubt that there will be times maybe in glory where God will reveal to me how his angels protected me Daniel when he's in the lion's den thrown into a, a den of ravenous lions the king comes back the next day and says oh Daniel are you okay and he says my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and then Hebrews 1.14, as, uh, as the writer is describing the ministry of angels, he says, And are they, are angels not ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Loved ones, all I want us to do is think about reality a little bit. To, to open our eyes and open our hearts and open our minds and understand what Scripture says, that this world is more than a physical, biological place. That there is a spiritual reality all around us. That's my point. It's a simple one. We are not alone in this world. And what you can see is not all that there is, or what you see is not only what you see. And there is a reality all around us of forces that are for and against us. That there are God's angels that do his bidding. And there are the demons of Satan who are at war with the saints of God. We have no idea who God sends our way or when God sends them away. Or the help that we have received from these heavenly beings. But I'm convinced that Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 is reference to angel or to, to um, Hebrew or to uh, Genesis chapter 18, where it says there that um, we, are, uh, we entertain angels unaware. But it, what's even more fascinating to me, 
as we follow this thought through is that God is not an absentee owner. He's not an absentee landowner speak. God enters human history. And although the Bible tells us that God is invisible, it also describes incidents in which God makes himself visible. He he appears by human beings and he knows what is going on in his world and we have not been left to our own devices. We are not all alone. There is help and there is regular help and awareness. God is not only aware of what's going on in his world, he comes to see what is going on in his world. This is massively comforting. And it's a perspective that so many of our neighbors and friends and even our family members don't have a clue of. When you read Genesis chapter 18 all the way through, you you find there's at least three reasons why God has come to visit Abraham. One is he comes to affirm the promise that he's made to Abraham that his wife, Sarah, is going to have a child from her own womb. It's kind of like a heavenly birth announcement delivered in person by God. Amazing. But he also comes to have a conversation with Abraham. That's amazing. But on top of that, he says he has come down to earth to see for himself what is going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, God knows what's going on. God is in heaven. But it's a way of, I think, illustrating and showing that God is concerned about his world. It says, then the Lord says, because the outside outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very great, grave, I will go down and see whether I have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not... I will know. This is not unusual behavior for God. And I gain loved ones. It it just it helps to work this through once in a while and think this through. God appeared in the garden to, to find Adam and Eve. We're told that Enoch walked with God while he was on the earth. We can read in the story of Babel how God came down to see what they were building. We realize that when God was delivering the Ten Commandments, that God came down to Mount Sinai. We realize that when the people of Israel were enslaved to the Egyptians, that God saw the affliction and suffering of his people, enslaved by Egypt, and came down to save them. This is amazing stuff. This really is encouraging, loved ones. We're not alone. This world is not something that that just happened to be and is spinning around aimlessly with nobody concerned or nobody aware with what's going on. And of course, we're only weeks away, are we not, from remembering the birth of Jesus, which is the incarnation, which is really the birth of God. The incarnation is, is in the most profound way God coming to dwell with us, God taking on human flesh. We read there, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Paul describes the coming down to earth of God in the person of Jesus Christ this way by saying that Christ emptied himself. By taking the form of a spirit, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, we see God in Jesus Christ. We see God fully in Jesus Christ. 
Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You see, what, what Abraham is realizing and what we're, we can know as New Testament believers and we can go back there now is that God is involved in his world. I don't understand it fully, but God came down in human form. Jesus came down in human form and spoke to Abraham before his tent and ate the meal that Abraham presented to him. God is intimately involved with his world. This last week, I was reading again Daniel chapter 5, where Daniel is summarizing the experience of Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar, who has just seen writing on the wall, and he's freaked out by this writing. And Daniel says to Belshazzar, he says, Your father was driven from among the children of mankind. His man was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whomever he will. God is involved in his world. God knows what is going on in his world. God visits his world. My point, loved ones, is as we read through this, this account of Abraham, it's shocking. It presents a view of reality that is so foreign to the vast number of people in this world in which we live. The physical world is not all that there is. This world is God's world. It is his possession. He made it. He takes a personal interest in the people and the activities of his world. There are a vast number of spiritual beings who interact for and against God's people. It may be not what you expected, but it is true. Three men were standing nearby. Think about that for a minute. Think about who those three men were that were standing before Abraham. The second thing that was unexpected but true for me, and it, it might, you might think this is a little bizarre, but it's fellowship with God. This is a foretaste of what is to become. It's unexpected, but it's true. How is it that, that a human being can have fellowship, can eat a meal with the one who created them? You see, as you read these verses, there's a tornado of activity that takes place as soon as these three individuals accept Abraham's in, um, invitation to stay for a meal. And it's all directly um, directed by Abraham. He ran. He hurried. He said to his wife Sarah, quick, make some bread. He ran. He hurried. Uh, what's the busyness? What, why, why all this haste in preparing the meal? There's this incredible sense of hospitality that he has here. But think for a moment who Abraham is preparing a meal for. Who are these three individuals? Two angels in the Lord. They've come in the flesh. They're in a human body. It's the joy of fellowship with God. 
every year, because I read through the Bible every year, I find myself reading Exodus chapter 24 there about how Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up onto Mount Sinai and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. He did not lay his hand on the chief men of Israel or the people of Israel, and they beheld God and they ate and drank. It's this incredible picture of fellowship, eating and drinking, certainly before God, maybe with God. And table fellowship is one of the best kinds of fellowship. When you actually sit down and have a meal with somebody, there's a sense of comfort and a relaxation and, a, and an intimacy that, that you don't find in so many other ways that we meet. But again, these are just questions that I ask. Doesn't it strike you odd that the two angels in Jehovah eat? They eat the meal that Abraham prepared for them. It said Abraham stood by while they ate. Unexpected, but true. Angels. Jehovah eating a meal that Abraham prepared. Now you may think I'm reaching, but I think often of heaven and of the new world to come, and I wonder what will it be like and I do think one of the activities will be eating. I'm convinced of it. There's so many clues in the Bible to that. After all, have you ever thought about it? The resurrected Jesus ate a meal in his resurrected body. He came and he found the uh, disciples and there was a fire and they prepared fish for him and bread and he ate it. At the end of the age, we are all going to be with Jesus, and our bodies will be perfected and glorified. We will be glorified. We will be made perfect. Well, what's one of the first things we're going to do? We're going to eat the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's not some invisible wafer. It's not some pretend meal that we eat. It's a meal that God has prepared for us. After all, it says that the, the people of Israel, when they are going through the desert, they ate manna. And what was manna? It's described by David in Psalm 78 as the, food, uh, the bread of angels. John, writing to the church at Ephesus, says to those that persevere to the end, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Then in the new heavens and the new earth, there is the tree of, um, uh, the tree of life. And it's, in the, it's, it's beside the river of life, flowing from the throne of God. And the lamb is on the middle, um, in the middle of the street of the city. And on either side is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, le- le- yielding its fruit each month. And even in the garden, before Adam and Eve sinned, as they had bodies, as they were perfect, they ate of all the bounty that God had provided them. This is just just a little hint to me of what is coming. That heaven doesn't mean the absence of food. I think one of the things that probably most of us enjoy is food. And the variety of food. It just struck me as so unexpected, though, that the angels and God ate the meal that they prepared. And it launched me into thinking of the new heaven and the new earth in which God's bounty will be still there for us to enjoy and to eat. The final thing that I found unexpected 
It was God. Exposed by God or exposed to God in this text. You start reading verses 9 to 15 of this text when they finally speak now. This is the, this is the after dinner conversation. Maybe they picked an after eight up and they munched that down and this was their after dinner conversation. Things now are revealed which are unexpected again but true. And as I was thinking, this has got to be one of the most fascinating after dinner conversations that Abraham probably ever had. I thought about this. First of all, God's knowledge of us as individuals. How did they know Sarah's name? This, this must have been the first hint to Abraham that there was something odd about these three visitors. Because he, he, he probably just had had the conversation about Sarah bearing a child maybe weeks ago, not long ago. So how did they know that his wife's name was Sarah? Not Sarai, Sarah. Remember, her name was changed. And then you realize that God has knowledge of the future. And he's able to determine the future. He says, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time. There's so much wrapped up in that. Abraham's going to be alive. Sarah's going to have a son. So much involved in that statement of God's power. How much can go wrong in a pregnancy? This is just how my head works, but God had to have his hand on Sarah. Abraham and Sarah had to have relations. She had not been able to have a child. She had not been able to be pregnant. She had not been able to carry a, a child to term, and now she's going to have a baby. God knows all of that. In the future, his word is going to come true. In about a year's time, he's going to come back, and I'll show you, Abraham. I control the present, and I control the future. It's also fascinating to me, and encouraging, not scary, that God knows my inner thoughts. Do you know that? Do you know that God knows what goes on in your head? Sometimes it does scare me, because I think, where did that thought come from? And I'm embarrassed before the Lord, and I'm ashamed, and I'm convicted. But we read that Sarah is listening to the conversation. Although she's in the tent, she's, she's behind the flap of the tent, and, and the back of the, probably the Lord, is to her. The Lord speaking to Abraham, supposedly undetected by this visitor, and the narrator sets up the next interaction. He sets the future declaration of Sarah's child against the backdrop of Sarah's reality to Abraham and Sarah. She's old, she's getting on in years, and menopause had likely struck, and she's past childbearing years. And so the narrator says she laughed to herself. This was an internal response to an internal struggle that she's having. Just as was the conversation that she has with herself. After I become shriveled up, and my Lord is old, and will I have delight? Most likely that's a reference to physical relations with her husband. It struck me, was this the first time that she heard that she's going to bear Abraham, a son, from her body? It seemed, she seemed shocked. She seemed taken surprised. But Abraham had been told only a week or two earlier, I'm sure it's only a week or two earlier, by God, that your wife Sarah is going to bear you a son. I think, well, Abraham hasn't told her yet. Why is Abraham keeping it a secret from her? Is he, is he afraid? Her? Does he not want her to get hurt again? Have they gone around this, this conversation again and again and again? 
You see, because it seems like the Lord rebukes Abraham. The Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? That's what makes me wonder. Abraham hasn't told her yet. Sounds like a mild rebuke. He's exposed by God. Because as I said, Sarah was hidden in the tent. She was behind the Lord. He couldn't see her facial features. He couldn't hear her inner chuckle. He didn't hear her utter words of doubt. They were words she thought. She didn't speak them. Turns out that he knew what she thought that no one else would know. She was exposed by God. It's encouraging. It's important that we understand that God knows our thoughts in so many different ways. I was thinking again of Psalm 139. We're really familiar with that psalm. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. Are acquaint, you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I've got a list of scriptures here. I can't read them that illustrate this truth that God knows our thoughts. For the most part, I find it an incredible relief. It allows me to have an open relationship with God. There's nothing that I need to hide. There's nothing that I can hide from him. It makes prayer more meaningful. It makes forgiveness more encompassing. It makes the relationship more secure. Do you ever think about this? That Do you ever worry that if somebody... Maybe your spouse really knew everything about you and how you thought. They did be out of there in a second. I do think that sometimes. Kathy tells me again and again she's never going to leave me, and I believe her. But with God, he knows absolutely every single thing about me. Every thought, every intent, every motive, every action, every lie, every truth, everything about me. And he loves me still. Finally, God of the humanly impossible. Maybe it was Abraham who still needed convincing. And so God says to Abraham, is anything impossible for the Lord? It seemed like Abraham needed assurance of the promise of God. Nothing is impossible. Nothing is too marvelous for God. It's one of the great declarations of Scripture, like the one we looked at last week. I will be God to you. It's helpful, though, and it's important to remember that the statement of God explicitly relates to Sarah giving birth to a child when they are both well past childbearing years. So how do we relate that kind of statement to our life? Nothing is impossible with God. I suspect that a lot of us, we have a lot of ways in which we say, God, but I know, God, it's not impossible with you. I want to buy this house. I only got an $8,000 down payment. I need a $500,000 mortgage, but God, nothing's impossible for you. We have all these scenarios in which we put God in to use his power so that what we think is impossible, God will make possible. That's not how it's used in context here. This statement that nothing is impossible with God is always connected with a promise, and so we must use it that way. We have a promise of forgiveness. You ever think that through? I need forgiveness. Wow, like the scope of my need. 
the inability of me to do anything about my sin and its penalties and its curse. Nothing is impossible with God. I need to be perfect. It's not a chance. There's not a hope that I will ever be perfect. Nothing is impossible with God because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the coming of Christ. We have the promise of everlasting life. The one who believes in me shall live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Can you believe that? Never die. When we are confronted hourly, it seems, with death, death, um, what's the word? Statistics. Confronted hourly with the statistics of how many people are dying around us in the world in which we live. And Jesus says, whoever believes in me will never die. Nothing is impossible with God. So the way to handle that promise or that statement, nothing is impossible to God, is to attach it to a promise of God. The unexpected but true. Woven through these first 15 verses all over the place. May God bring us to a realization that this is his world and he is intimately involved in it as are a whole host of spiritual beings. May God fill us with incredible thoughts. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what he has prepared for those who love him of the new heavens and the new earth to come. And may God fill us with truths about his knowledge of us and his way with us and our security in him through Christ. Father, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for the way that with dribs and drabs you reveal to us a little bit more about ourselves, a little bit more about the world we live in, a little bit more about you. I pray that um, this text, this wonderful appearing of you to Abraham with such a specific purpose to remind him that you are God of your word. Some of the unexpected things that popped off the pages and the verses of this text will be an encouragement to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.